Hello, this sermon audio is a ministry of the Town Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you would like to learn more about us, how to connect, or how to support us, go to our website, thetownchurch.org. While listening to the Bible preached is a healthy part of our spiritual formation, it is not the whole picture. So if you aren't a part of a local church, we encourage you to prayerfully commit to a local body of believers where you live. We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of His glory to you. I'm glad you made it. You're here. First day of Advent. Happy Advent to you. It's a beautiful season. Major and Shanna did all the decorations in here, so if you see them, you know them. They did a great job. Uh, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. Vince, our usual teaching pastor, is back up here next week. Okay. If you are just joining us, we are getting toward the end of a sermon series looking at the minor prophets. There they all are. These are minor prophets not because they are unimportant, but because they're short. There's shorter books in our Bible, and they're the books at the end of our Old Testament. We are studying the minor prophets so we see more of God so that our love for God will grow. And that's the point, isn't it? We want to see more of God and then have our love for God grow as a result. And this has been happening in my heart over the last 10 weeks or so. After today, we only have two more prophets left. We are getting close to the end. We'll see our love for God grow. But there are also some real obstacles for our love to God to grow. Are there not? I mean, think about, think about this. Even actually seeing more of God sometimes does not automatically and quickly translate into a growing love for God, does it? I mean, what happens when we see more of God's sovereignty, so we see more of God for who he is, but we experience that sovereignty as God allowing some pain or some hardship into our lives? Does our love for God grow as we see more of God's sovereignty then, or do we maybe start to experience some questions around God's goodness, around God's power? What about when we see more of God's patience, but we see God's patience in our impatient prayers that his timelines don't line up with our own timelines. Does our love for God grow then when we see more of his patience? Or maybe we start to feel some distrust starting to creep in. Or what about when we see more of God's justice? This is part of who God is as well. But we experience God's justice personally as he starts to deal with the sin in our own lives, which often doesn't feel very good. Does a love for God grow then when we see more of his justice, or do we start to want to put God a little bit more at arm's length? Okay, have you experienced these things? I have. You see, the kind of trust that we're talking about there is, is, is a matter of the heart. I think many of us in here would nod that, yep, God is good and God is sovereign, but sometimes our hearts are a completely different story at times. I mean, fully loving God has been a challenge for all of humanity since the fall, has it not? This is nothing new for us in our generation. Think about the people of Israel and the things that must have been bombarding their hearts, questions they must have had about their good God. Think about their history. God established them in a nation, in a land that he promised to give them. And then years later, due to their sin, he de-establishes them. And they're sent into exile into a pagan nation. What God gave, then God gave away. Are the people of Israel sure they want to trust this God? What kind of God is this anyway? Imagine the kind of skepticism that may have started to creep into their hearts. Maybe some distrust or disillusionment. 
Imagine the temptation to keep this God that took away what he gave them to keep this God at arm's length. And fast forward years, now the people are starting to come back from exile, back to the promised land. That skepticism may still have remained. Now this promised land is a waste, it's desolate. And even as the people start to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, the very symbol of God's presence returning to them, it's here that the book of Ezra tells us that they were stopped by fierce opposition by the non-Israelites living in the land. And that stoppage lasted for 16 years. It's at this point that the prophet we learned about last week, Haggai, that God sent Haggai to encourage the people to again restart the rebuilding of the temple. And the people do this, but, but even though the work on the temple restarted, major work on the people's hearts still needed to be done. The people's wavering, skeptical, keep-God-at-arm's-length kind of hearts needed to be reintroduced to their God. So how was God going to capture his people's hearts again? Well, he, he decided to send a prophet with some really wild messages. He decided to send a prophet at the same time that he sent Haggai. In fact, this prophet's first message was just two months after Haggai's first message. God decided to send our prophet for this morning, the prophet Zechariah. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to the Zechariah. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew next to you. Zechariah is toward the end of the Old Testament. It goes Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. If you hit Malachi or Matthew, you went just a little bit too, hard, too far. The book of Zechariah. If you're using a pew Bible, page 793. All right. How many of you read this book before you came this morning? This may be embarrassing. Uh, some of us, at, at least? Okay. Good. Let me make a few introductory notes as we get going on the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is a really dense book, and it's full of apocalyptic literature like some of the other books of the Bible. Apocalyptic literature is is, uh, writings that frequently use images to show things that will happen in the future. So let me warn you, what we're about to read is not easy to understand often on a first reading. And sometimes not on the second, or the third, or the fourth, or the fifth reading. Scholars at times struggle with this book. But, but, we can still discern some of the main themes that God has for us this morning. So, I am going to focus on what I believe is a main theme throughout the book of Zechariah. I'm going to trace it all the way through the book for us. But, uh, let me lower your expectations. We are not going to get anywhere close to interpreting everything in this book. It's just way too much. It's way too dense for one sermon. We're going to try to do this in one sermon. Okay, and second... Because Zechariah weaves these things in and out through the entire book, we're going to have to bounce around the book a lot. So we'll be flipping pages. I'm going to have some up on the screen to try to make it a little bit easier for us as well. And I'm I'm going to use this sentence to try to help keep us focused throughout this book as well. So this sentence, the what, why, when, and how, when that is completed will be what I believe is the main theme of the book of Zechariah. So as we go, we're going to fill this in. So hopefully that visual will help us stay on track a little bit. Okay, are you ready? Wow, guys, this is Zechariah. <laughs> are you ready? <laughs> All right. Um, I, I actually want to pray because this book is a little crazy. So let me pray that the Spirit does some work in applying the truths to our hearts. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would, through your Spirit, show us more of you here in the book of Zechariah. Would you 
apply these truths? Would you give us discernment and clarity of thought as we look at the words that you gave to Zechariah and the words that you preserved for us today? It's no mistake that we're reading them this morning. It's out of your sovereignty, your goodness. I ask, you, I ask that you'd help me to communicate clearly. I pray that you would do what only you can do. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So how was God going to capture the hearts of his people? Well, let's start by reading Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, and the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and your, from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he dealt with us. Right off the bat, we get the first part of the main theme throughout Zechariah. Here is God, the Lord of hosts, the all-powerful, almighty God, crying out through Zechariah to his people to return to me. This is a theme that we've seen throughout the Minor Prophets, isn't it? This theme to return back to God. God is pleading with the people to not be like their ancestors, but to finally learn. <laughs> learn what? Learn that you cannot fight against this God and win. So as a proof, God asked the people, what remains? Was it my word from generations and generations ago, or were, was it the people who did not listen to me? And the answer is clear. The people are all gone, but God's word remains with them. In fact, God accomplished everything he said he would. He promised to punish sin, and those words did indeed overtake the people. Verse 6. Remember way back when Moses brought Israel out of Egypt, and they come to Mount Sinai, and this is where God gives the people the law, this massive law that teaches Israel how they are now supposed to live as God's people. Well, as part of this, in Deuteronomy chapter 28 is an example, there are a bunch of curses for what God will do if the people decide to disobey and act like they are not his people. So now, roughly 2,000 years after God gave that law, all of those promises have been fulfilled. <laughs> as a result of the sin of the people, God sent them into exile, exactly what God said he would do in those curses in Deuteronomy chapter 28. The word of the all-powerful God overtook them. What God purposed to do, he did. God is true to his word. So, return to God. He's trustworthy and he's just. What he purposes to do, he does. But this brings up an important question that I think is relevant for all of us today. Is if God is trustworthy to punish sin, 
then do we turn to him just to escape that punishment? Does that make sense? Is our turning to God simply a strategy to not get yelled at, so to speak? Years ago, I used to work for a boss who acted like that kind of God. He would yell and scream and intimidate and literally throw things in order to get people to do what he wanted them to do. And it actually kind of worked. I mean, people did some of these things that he yelled at them to do, but I'll tell you, like, nobody wanted to work for him. Like, nobody would go above the bare minimum for what it meant to just not get yelled at. So is this what turning to God looks like, that we sign up to do whatever God tells us to do just so we can avoid punishment? Is that what it means to hear and pay attention to God, unlike the past generations of verse 4? Well, the answer to that question is sprinkled all the way throughout the book of Zechariah, but I think it's most clearly seen in verses in chapter 7 and 8. So turn over to Zechariah chapter 7. Let me set the stage for us. Chapter 7 opens about two years after chapter 1, what we just read. A small delegation of Jews from a small town called Bethel arrive in Jerusalem, and they have a question. They have a question about a fast. See, the Jews have put into place four fasts to mournfully remember the heartbreaking events around the destruction of Jerusalem that happened about 70 years prior. And one of these particular fasts happened on the fifth month. That fast commemorated Nebuchadnezzar destroying the temple. So, now the people are back from exile and the temple's being rebuilt, the question is natural. Should they continue these fasts or not? And God's answer to their question, I believe, clearly demonstrates what God means when he says, return to me. Let's read it. Chapter 7, starting in verse 4. We're going to read verses 4 through 7. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with their cities around her? and the south and the lowland were inhabited. Isn't God's answer surprising? They're, they're fasting. And then God says, you're fasting for yourselves. It's, it's all backwards. Which, by the way, this fast on the fifth month was a fast that God never instructed them to, to observe in the first place. They fast for themselves. They, these fasts have become empty religious activities that make the people feel better about themselves rather than flowing from a heart focused on their God. So what does it look like to not do that but rather turn to God? Verses 8 through 10. Let's read on. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your hearts. The people were to show their relationship to God through obedience. And what did that obedience look like? It, it looked like genuinely loving each other. You see, this is again a matter of the heart, isn't it? It's not a matter of simply observing particular religious activities or doing something good to avoid God's anger. 
Verse 11 through 12 makes this plain. Let's read on. Verses 11 and 12. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they may not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. Their hearts had become diamond hard. Rather than hearing the voice of God and joyfully obeying by loving each other, they instead turned to empty religious activity. In the past generations, this resulted in God punishing them, just as he said he would do. And so God, by Zechariah, is calling the people to turn back to him, to not be like their ancestors, but rather to have soft hearts. All right, but what about the question about the fasts? God goes on in chapter 8. He answers this. He actually turns the fasts on their head. Instead of fasting, God tells them to enjoy feasting and to love truth and peace. The point, I think, is clear. A people's turning to God would be evident by people hearing and joyfully obeying God to genuinely love each other rather than going through the motions of religious activity. This is what's wrapped up in God saying, return to me. Didn't you hear that this morning? (laughs) Are you feeling exhausted by trying to do all this religious activity, all these good things, but you have no idea what it means to actually love God with your heart? God's calling you to turn to him, not to religious activity. Do you get the difference there? How you live, particularly how you love others, will show your relationship with God, not from checking the boxes. How you live flows from a love of God, not by doing this, all this religious activity. Turning to God is not trying to do the bare minimum to not get yelled at. Rather, God is saying, bring your heart back to me and then live accordingly. Does that make sense? I'm going to need help this morning. Does that make sense? Because I really am asking. Does that make sense? Okay. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts. That is what the people were to do. But this is not where I actually think the main emphasis of the book of Zechariah falls. Rather, Zechariah spends much more time on something else that God says in verse 3 of chapter 1. Turn back, chapter 1, verse 3. What else does the all-powerful God say in verse 3? He says, return to me and I will return to you. Now, God's returning does not mean he was somehow completely absent in the past. Rather, this is referring to God's special presence returning in a special way with his people, a presence that would inhabit the temple. And this return of God to the people is supposed to be a motivation for the people to return to God. So here then is the question that I believe the majority of the book of Zechariah answers. Why? Should God's promise to return motivate the people to return? What would God's return mean for this people whom God has been punishing for their sin? Would they just be asking for more pain and punishment if God got any nearer? God's just told them to bring their hearts back to him, but can he even be trusted with them? Remember what happened before? They had the promised land, now they don't. Nearness to God is supposed to be a good thing, but maybe they aren't fully convinced. Maybe you aren't fully convinced. Why 
Should God's return motivate the people to return to God? Well, Zechariah takes up this question three months after he records what we just read in chapter 1 by describing eight visions that God gave him apparently in one night. These visions are the content of chapters 1 through 6. The first vision is in chapter 1, verses 7 through 17, and it uses the image of four horsemen. This image sets up a giant contrast between a calm, resting world and the chaotic, tenuous world of Israel, what they were experiencing. So in verse 12, look at verse 12. Right after it is reported that the world's at rest, an angel asks God, but what about your people? They're not at rest due to your punishment. What will God answer? What would God's return to them mean? Would it mean more punishment? Let's find out. Verse 13. Let's read verses 13 through 17. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall overflow again with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. For God's people, God's returning presence meant comfort. Comfort. Is this what God's presence means to you? Is it comfort even when he sovereignly allows some really hard things in your life? Is it comfort when he is too patient for your liking? Is it comfort when he rips your comfortable sin out of your life? I I can tell you it's not always comfortable for me. But God's return, he says here, for his people meant comfort. This is the why. Turn to God because God comforts. In fact, in contrast to God's sure purpose to bring punishment upon Israel's ancestors for their sin, this is what we read in chapter 8 about his sure purpose to bring comfort. I have it on the screen. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. This comfort This purpose is described over and over again in many different ways throughout the book of Zechariah. Let's look at how these visions communicate it. To help us get the gist of these visions, let's pick out just the stark contrast or the stark reversals that Zechariah uses in each one to describe the comfort God's presence brings. We're going to move really, really quickly, so I'm going to put them on the slide to help us keep track as we go. We've already seen one here in chapter 1. The contrast between a land at rest and Israel who was not at rest. But even from this contract, there is another reversal in there. Did did you catch it? 
Israel, who was described as receiving no mercy in verse 12, now receives mercy in verse 16. A mercy that even shows itself as a grace of prosperity in verse 17. No mercy to receiving mercy. God's comforting presence meant prosperity. Now, I don't mean prosperity like if you're a good Christian, then you'll be healthy and wealthy. What I mean is that there's a sort of flourishing, a sort of thriving of God's people connected to God's presence. Isn't there? (laughs) Guys, I'm going to need help this morning. All right. This is what I mean by prosperity. Now, the next two visions describe God's protection of his people. The first describes powerful forces represented by horns that rise up against them in verse 21 of chapter 1. But God, by using other forces represented by craftsmen, cast them down. The second in chapter 2, I told you we're going to move fast. The second in chapter 2 describes a massive population in Jerusalem who are called back out of exile. A population who were plundered by the nations in verse 8 and will now plunder those same nations, verse 9. So we've got powers rising up against people that are cast down. God's people who were plundered are now the plunderers. God's comforting presence meant prosperity and protection. The fourth vision vision is beautiful. Let's actually look at it. It's in chapter 3. Let's read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Did you catch the contrast? God himself makes filthy, sin-stained Joshua, whose job it was to represent the people before God, he makes Joshua clean. Who makes Joshua clean? Thank you. Yes, God himself. In fact, all through these symbolic events, all the way through Zechariah, God is the main actor who accomplishes them all. God alone. The people are returned to God, and then God himself would accomplish all of these things. I'll tell you this, last week preparing this sermon, that is what hit me the hardest. The incredible goodness of God is absolutely overwhelming in this book of Zechariah, this strange book of Zechariah. God himself, out of sheer grace, accomplishes undeserved good for his people. God himself does that. Like filthy people being made clean. God's comforting presence meant prosperity, protection, and purification. This point's driven home in the fifth vision, this time focusing on Zerubbabel, the civic leader that God uses to lead the charge to rebuild the temple. In this vision, the Holy Spirit is represented by oil. But this is oil that has an unlimited supply. There's two trees that are providing the oil. When Zechariah asks, what do these things mean? An angel answers and says this. Turn over to Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. In response to his question, the angel says this. 
Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the top stone among shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundations of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. God himself would be the power enabling Zerubbabel to finish the rebuilding of the temple. Before God's power, obstacles that seem like mountains to us are made to be plains. Mountains are made to be plains. God's comforting presence meant prosperity, protection, purification, and power. The sixth and seventh visions in chapter 5 are pretty obscure, but both had to do with God purifying the land of sin. In the sixth vision, a scroll representing the curses containing the massive law that God gave the people through Moses is sent out from God only to enter the homes of those breaking the law. And there the scroll consumes everything and executes judgment on sin. In the seventh vision, a reversed exodus of sorts occurs. Rather than God's people being exiled to Babylon, wickedness is exiled to Babylon, the land of Shinar. God's comforting presence meant prosperity, protection, purification, and power. And then we have the final vision, vision eight. And this book ends this whole group of visions by again being about this imagery of horses in the state of the world. But rather than the world being at rest, we see God's spirit is at rest after judging Babylon, the north country. So this means that from the first vision all the way to the eighth vision, we have, uh, we have moved from God's people experiencing God's judgment to Babylon now experiencing God's judgment. God's comforting presence meant prosperity, protection, purification, and power. We just had eight visions in like three minutes. We flew. Are you still with me? Okay. I know it's difficult to follow, um, but here's the big idea that I want us all to have at this point. God returning to his people meant comfort for them. A comfort that he would accomplish and a comfort that expresses itself in at least four different ways. And this is woven all the way through the visions. as prosperity, protection, purification, and power. I hardly ever use alliteration, but I did it for you this morning. Four Ps. These same themes continue throughout the second half of the book as well, even though the feel in Zechariah in chapter 9 starts to change quite a bit. Chapters 9 through 14, the rest of the book, form two oracles. The first, is, the first oracle is chapters 9 through 11. The second oracle are chapters 12 through 14. But even though the feel changes tremendously here, the themes remain. So for example, in the first oracle, in chapter 10, we read this. It's on the slide. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. 
God is the giver of good gifts here. It is God who brings the spring rains that then bring prosperity to the people, to the land. It's not the idols. What do the idols bring? Catch this. The idols bring empty consolation. Or literally, the idols give not comfort. Exactly the opposite of what God's presence brings. And chapter 10 then goes on to describe how God's comforting presence would bring protection and power to the people, transforming them from wandering sheep here in verse 2 to war horses in verse 3 to mighty warriors in verse 7. The second oracle begins in chapter 12, and it too is similar, promising ultimate protection and prosperity of Jerusalem, chapters 12 and 14, and promising total purification from sin, chapters 13 and the end of 14. Do you see, do you see the amazing comfort that God's presence brings if his people return to him? These are things that God alone accomplishes. He promises to do that. What a good God we have indeed. Turning to God is not merely escaping from punishment, is it? It's also a turning to God's utter and complete goodness. A goodness that's stronger than our hesitations about how God's sovereignty and his patience and his justice may have played out in our lives. A goodness that has purposed, been purposed by God, and just like God's purpose to punish sin, God's purpose is to comfort cannot be thwarted. That is a comfort, isn't it? Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. But that's not the end. The bow isn't quite wrapped as neatly as all that. Did you send some tension as we went through the visions? These, these visions that, that tell about all the comfort that God's, that God's uh, presence is supposed to be, the, the prosperity, the protection, the purification, the power, and to the extent that those things are supposed to happen? I mean, history shows us that Israel was never again a fully functioning, prosperous nation like it was under King Solomon or King David. Their protection didn't last forever. In fact, they were conquered by foreign powers, Greece and then later Rome. The people did experience many revivals, but nothing to the sort of what we read about, this widespread purification. And the power of God within their midst did finish rebuilding the temple, but it did not maintain the temple. The temple is destroyed again in 70 AD by Rome. So what is going on here? Are, God, are God's words hollow? Is, are his promises really not as comforting as he tries to make it sound? It's, it's like a bait and switch of sorts. To understand what's happening, we have to remember that Zechariah contains several layers of prophecy on top of each other. By the Spirit of God, from Zechariah's standpoint, he foresees near-future events, mid-range future events, and far-future events. And then, just to add to the complexity, Zechariah's prophecy at times moved between centuries and even millennia in the span of one verse, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, with little to no warning. So, for example, chapter 14 almost deals exclusively with the end of time, the end of history. Whereas chapter 9 moves from closer mid-range events to further mid-range events to far future events, all the way back to close, closer mid-range events. 
So even though God's people experienced a portion of the comfort that God's presence brings, they didn't experience the full effect yet. This is an effect that won't be experienced until far into the future. So here's my question for us today as we read this. Does this jumping around somehow lessen the message of comfort that God's presence brings to his people? I'm tempted to think that, but I'd be wrong. (laughs) Think about this. Through Zechariah, God is demonstrating his sovereign aim to bring comfort to his people through the millennia. Nothing surprises God. And like we saw in chapter 1 and chapter 8, what God purposes to do, he does, even to the end of the age. God has a comforting purpose so much greater than just the events surrounding Zechariah's lifetime. He has a purpose that's so much greater than the events just surrounding our lifetime. It goes far beyond. See, rather than lessening God's comforting promises, Zechariah's prophecy, I believe, actually enlarges them. We're talking about all of time here. This answers, then, the when question. Turn to God because God comforts now, in the future, and forever. Now, to the final question, the how question. I want to look at one last contrast in chapter 9. This contrast is going to show us how God ultimately plans through the ages to bring about lasting comfort for his people. Let me summarize verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to read a couple verses here in chapter 9. Chapter, uh, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 9 describe the downfall of many nations around Israel. It's, these, these are events that actually happened 200 years after Zechariah's lifetime. It describes the downfall of the Syrians, and then the Phoenicians, and then the Philistines. This is how it happened. They fell to a great warrior king by the name of Alexander the Great. I'm sure you've heard about Alexander the Great. This Greek king laid waste to Israel's enemies, everybody who was surrounding them. Alexander the Great's power was absolutely unrivaled. And then we're throwing a complete curveball. This is the contrast starting in in verse 9 of chapter 9. Look at verse 9 of chapter 9. This is the second half of this contrast that's been set up. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In comparison to the great warrior king Alexander the Great, God's people are here told to rejoice over the coming of their own king. But what a contrast, isn't it? As Alexander comes with all his pomp and all of his might, this king, their own king, comes humbly mounted on a donkey. Contrasted with Alexander conquering the known world through his military prowess, this king will bring peace to the entire world. Zechariah is really interested in this king. 
In fact, all the way throughout Zechariah's book, there are scattered threads about this king. And now I want us to put all of them together. We're going to move quickly, so I'm going to have them on the slide as we go through this. Back in chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, this humble king is prefigured by the cleansing of Joshua the high priest. Remember that vision? Only this king will remove the sin of the entire land in a single day. Chapter 6, verses 12 through 13 This king will be, for the first time in Israel's history, also a priest. In chapter 11, this priest king has a role that Zechariah himself symbolically acts out as a good shepherd caring for his people. Yet this good shepherd is surprisingly rejected by the people and its leaders. That's not all. Now we're moving in the far future. We're told in chapter 12, verse 10, this rejected good shepherd priest king will be pierced and will be the object of the Jews' intense mourning as God's Spirit moves through them to bring about repentance. Then chapter 13 opens by describing the good shepherd priest king as a fountain that opens up and cleanses us from sin. Chapter 13 goes on and describes the piercing of the good shepherd as this as a striking, a striking that would result in the people being scattered, but also purified. You see, there is something so much deeper at work here in the counsel of God to bring about lasting comfort for his people. It's not just about the temple being rebuilt. God calls out to his people to bring their hearts back to him, but But he knew all along that his people were unable to simply choose God and turn back to him on their own. The the fall, way back in Genesis chapter 3, ensured that we would never choose God on our own. Our hearts, broken by sin, were the problem. It wasn't a lack of a temple. And no amount of heady persuasion or sheer willpower could change our dire situation of being cut off from our good God and eternally destined for death. You see, we were stuck in a trap of sin. And for us to return to God, God himself would need to do something about it. He would need to make purification from sin happen. And so he planned all along for a good shepherd priest king to be our Messiah, to do what only God could do, to forever deal with our heart's sin problem. So God sent his son, This is what we celebrate at Advent. God sent his son, Jesus, whose birth we celebrate year after year after year. Jesus, who was born in a humble stable to be our good shepherd, to live a perfect life, but who was also rejected by his own people one week after entering Jerusalem on a donkey, even to the point of being pierced and struck so that he might destroy sin and death in one day. By dying the death we deserve for our sin, by rising again, becoming our priest who mediates for us before God, cleansing us from sin, promising to come back someday, bringing with him everlasting peace and full restoration. You see, like this should be hitting us in the face. Jesus is God's ultimate plan for our prosperity, for our protection, for our purification and power. Jesus is God's ultimate plan for our lasting comfort. Jesus is the how. Turn to God because God comforts now in the future and forever 
ultimately through Jesus. This is what I think the main message of Zechariah is all about. There it is on the screen. So if you got lost in the visions, if you zoned out, like zone back in, like this is what I want you to remember about the message from Zechariah. Turn to God because God comforts now and the future and forever, ultimately through Jesus. Let that encourage you and draw you nearer to God. What a good and gracious and trustworthy God we have. He did for us what we never could. He bought for us our lasting comfort. Friends, if if you know Jesus, if you trust him, let this words of Zechariah comfort you. Even as you may have hesitations due to how God's sovereignty and his patience and his justice play out. The call for you is to give your heart more fully to God. And if you're not sure where you're not doing that, the Spirit is faithful to show you. Ask the Holy Spirit, where is your heart not doing that? God's good. He can be trusted. If you're here this morning, you're not sure that you trust Jesus. If you're exploring Jesus, I'd love to hear your thoughts. (laughs) The comfort God describes here in Zechariah is for the people of God, for the people who know and love Jesus. I or many others here would love to talk to you. One way you can get that going is fill out one of those little white connection cards. Fill it out. Tell us how we can best connect with you. Stick it in the giving slot by the front door, and we will be happy to contact you. All right. (laughs) We're almost done. Remember what our aim was at the very beginning of this. It was to see more of God and to have our love for God grow more as a result. So my hope is that by looking at Zechariah and the comforting words here, by God's grace, we've seen more of him and our love for him is growing. Let me pray that God would do this work in our hearts.